Good morning and welcome to this episode of Stewarding Family Wealth brought to you by Centurion Advisory Group, a Gwinnett-based independent fee-only wealth management firm. We are hosted by Gwinnett Business Radio X and the always outstanding Amanda Pierch. Amanda, thank you so much for being behind the desk uh, engineering for us today. Uh, Our guest today is Charlie Revis. This is a second episode with Charlie. If you listen to our earlier uh, podcast uh, just filled with uh, stories about the things that Charlie has learned over his lifetime. We are going to continue the discussion today. Charlie, good morning. Good morning, Randy. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad, uh, so glad that you were here. We had, uh, goodness, we we talked about your granddad. We talked about uh, corporate journey with the Bell System with AT&T. Um, and we, we had talked about you know, how to evaluate from when you make business investments. There was one thing that you mentioned, though, that I want to, that I wanted to come back to. Um, and your granddad taught you to pay yourself first. Mm-hmm. So you have a dollar. Yep. Always carve out a piece of it to set aside for your own future. Was that the, the gist of the? Yeah, it was a, a case of, of really uh, what he was saying was uh, you, you need to have what he called a rainy day fund. Okay. So the way you uh, establish that is always pay yourself. Okay. And as I mentioned in the earlier segment, was that he always taught me if if I had a loan, uh, whether it's for, for a car or anything else, where I needed to repay somebody, that was paramount. That was non-negotiable. That was paid. Set money aside, but, pay cash. And and you and you paid that. But then you also would pay yourself some amount out of every paycheck that you ever received in your entire life. Any, any money coming in, he would always say, pay yourself. And what he meant, as I said, again, was you're building, uh, as he referred to it, a rainy day fund, but you're really setting aside savings that you have so that when you get opportunities, like we talked about earlier, that perhaps you'd be in a position to take advantage of them. And plus the fact it allows you to sleep a little bit better at night. That's true. That's true. So everything from, you know, buying those things you need in your life that you may not be able to cover out of current cash flow, like buying a new car or um, taking advantage of opportunities or preparing for your own future. If there's ever a day that, you know, we we study how people allocate cash internally. And so I've developed a couple of thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. And this may sound very strange. It may sound extremely conservative, but here's a thought. Because I have watched this, and I'm, I am not going to name names, but I could name you. Um, but having studied this for decades, all right, here's my observation. If a household or a person, when they have a dollar of cash flow set aside 20 cents to cover their tax liabilities, choose to set aside 10 cents just to give away. Mm-hmm. Live with an open hand. Just Right. Give it somewhere where you where you know you're not going to get a return just to make a difference somewhere. Right. It, it, it embeds a sense of, it releases you from the tyranny of ownership, okay? Right. And then finally, take another dime out of that dollar and set it into the rainy day fund. Mm-hmm. A household or a person can discipline, discipline themselves to that habit and then just live the rest of their lives on the other 60 cents. Over time, it will yield a quality that is almost unsurpassed. Yep. In terms of quality of life. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember my, my great-grandfather, his name was Jim Adams. 
born in 1874 in Kansas. Mm. All right. When he reached age 65, it was 1939, okay? okay? Two years after Social Security became the law of the land. Mm-hmm. Okay? So Grandpa Jim, um, when he turned 65, started getting Social Security checks. The first four or five of those he sent back. <laughs> he said, I don't need the government's money. Yep. <laughs> I don't need it. You know, that's what, you're, that's what you're talking about from your grandfather. And we're in a very different culture now. But I believe it's prudent of us mm-hmm. to discipline ourselves because, you know, there's this thought that the government will always have money. Well, they're not sending us something that they haven't taken from somebody else, even if it's through inflation. But that's a, that's a whole, whole separate uh, podcast or five. But... The thought of preparing well is critical to um, uh, to handling handling money well, making good decisions. Is set money aside consistently for long term um, reserves. Right. Let's change subjects for a second. Okay. All right. Um, required minimum distributions. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fun, fun topic. <laughs> All right, I, I know you don't. I know you don't like this subject because uh, what happens if you if you if you uh, if you embrace those good habits across decades, and you have access to retirement plans at work, and you put money in, you end up with the seven and eight figure IRAs, and the uh, the required minimum distributions can just get out of hand. They can be lots and lots of money, all of which are taxable. Right. Well, most of the time they're taxable. Most of the time. Okay. Correct. So you have to pay attention so that you can manage your taxes well within within this time frame so okay so you've lived long enough that you've hit those ages where you're required to take distributions out of your ira right correct okay so right now that age has moved up to 72 there's conversation in congress about moving that up to age 75 but right now um so you're taking required minimum distributions and the or let's call it rmds so rmds is the the philosophy and tax law that since IRAs and all their brothers and sisters, simple IRAs, SEP IRAs, 401ks, that collection of before-tax assets is designed to generate cash flow when you would rather roll over than roll out and go to work. Therefore, the government requires that you take something out of those IRAs as taxable income. Right. Okay. So that, that goes back in the 70s and 80s. A few years ago, and time gets by, so it may be 10 years, maybe 15 years, but several years ago, there was legislation that allowed your RMDs, if you chose, to go to a charity of your choice Mm -hmm. and to go to that charity without ever stopping by your tax return as income. Right. Okay. So the traditional RMD, you just get this RMD, you take money out of your IRA, the minimum is mandated by law. At the end of the year, you get your 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 5498, it shows what the distributions are. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that is reported as income. Right. The challenge with an, an, a growing income once you reach Social Security and Medicare age, okay, is among, first of all, you're, you're still paying tax on your income. The higher your income, the higher your marginal tax rate. Correct. In addition to that, Medicare premiums are what I call means tested. Correct. So in simple language, that means the more money you make, the higher your Medicare Part B premiums are. Right. Okay. 
I will admit I live and work in a bubble, but this is this is meaningful for those of you who are in RMD territory, who have parents are that have embraced the habits that Charlie exemplifies for these years. Your income as you move through your 70s is, is probably what it was when you're working. All you're doing is just experiencing the benefits of decades of good habits. So distributions directly to charity are called qualified charitable distributions. Right. Everything on the planet has an acronym, so let's call yep. those QCDs. Correct. Okay, so you have the RMD and you have its cousin, the QCD. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the way it works is if you're in RMD territory, and you are, then, Charlie, you can choose to transfer some or all, entirely your choice about the percentage or amounts, some or all of your RMD to a charity of your choice, and as long as it's a 501c3 and designed to receive deductible contributions, right? Um, medical, religious, uh, scientific, literary, you know, the, all those, all that stuff, then the amount that goes to the charity does not hit your income tax return and is not included in AGI. Is correct. that right? That's correct. Meaning that if for those who have significant retirement incomes, regardless of the source, from IRA distributions, from pension income, from dividends, interest, just from a life a life of good habits, you end up with good solid cash flow, um, there's tax benefit in making that qualified charitable distribution of that QCD. That's uh, exactly right, Randy. And the, uh, there, there are a couple of uh, key aspects to, uh, to that and you touched on before and and that is as the owner of the ira at the individual owner you cannot touch those funds so what i do is i simply have the custodian of my ira do a wire transfer to the charity or charities of my choice into their account directly so I never touch the funds. I don't see them. That's between the two organizations. And so that's one of the requirements that has to be fulfilled in order for that amount of money out of your IRA uh, not to hit your tax return or become part of your AGI. You cannot touch those funds yourself. Okay, so if the so if uh, the custodian... Mm-hmm simply sent you a check. Let's say that, uh, I'm not going to use numbers, um, but let's say that you received a check for the amount of the RMD and then you turned around and stroked a check out of your business personal checkbook to the charity, okay? In that case, when that check comes to you, that whatever that dollar amount is, is included on your uh, as income to you and as part of your AGI and, as you know, um, your taxes, your um, your Medicare premiums, and so many other things are a function of your AGI, your modified AGI, MAGI. Right, okay. Right. So if it comes to you, then it's it's income. It's it's a distribution that's counted as income. Then if you if if it if you take the distribution as you described, and then you turn around and write the check to a charity, then potentially. You can deduct that contribution depending on what your personal tax situation right, is right. and whether you take a standard deduction right. or uh, ever how you ever how you do your taxes. But uh, under any circumstances, it's going to drive up your 
uh, income, and it's going to drive up your AGI, mm-hmm. which means that the uh, um, ta- amount of tax you pay on Social Security that you yep. collect every month is determined by your AGI. And as you talked about, the, the big kicker is uh, Medicare premiums, which has a significant penalty depending on what your AGI number is right. each year. Right. So uh, it can have, uh, basically it's a compounding impact to retirees. And yes. that's why that um, I encourage people that I talk with to utilize the Roth IRA to maximum benefit because then that way once you retire, then you, you take distributions, but you've already paid tax on, on the uh, amount that's in the Roth IRA, so you don't get hit again right. driving up your AGI. Right. Uh, so the QCD uh, is a great opportunity for people to uh, manage their taxes the best they can, but it is also a huge benefit for nonprofits, for charities, uh, yeah. and that's where uh, that's basically how I make my charitable contributions is through the QCD. Okay, so so operationally, and I want to talk more about the charity you give, the primary charity that you give to. But uh, so operationally, then uh, the the dollars in order to qualify as a QCD, the dollars must go directly from the custodian to the charity. So right. uh, operationally, you. you Pick the amount, or pick 100 percent of the of your RMD, or even frankly, even more. Right. Okay, up to 100 thousand dollars. Correct. Okay, unless your RMD is over 100 thousand dollars, and right now the QCD limits 100 thousand annually. Okay. Right. Um, you sign a sort. You sign a service form that's provided by the custodian that directs the custodian to transfer this dollar amount by check, by wire, by some means of transfer to the charity of your choice. Correct. And in that, you simply give that custodian uh, whatever identifying information is needed. If it's if it's electronic transfer, then it's it's routing information for the receiving uh, uh, brokerage account or bank or, or whatever. If it's by check, then it's address of record, that kind of thing. So, so that's the operational components of that, but it must go directly from the custodian to the charity. It cannot be made payable to you. It cannot stop by your checking account those kind of things. Correct. So, so and, and so that's the way you give most of your do most of your charitable giving, right? That's that's exactly right. And yes. the the large majority of your charitable giving goes to the National Spasmodic Dysphonia Association (NSDA). Correct. Is that right? That's correct. And 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 uh, as I understand it, the bulk of uh, in the future, your death, Brenda's death, the bulk of your state will also go to medical research. That's correct. Yeah. So tell me. T- uh, so let, let's let's come back and revisit uh, NSDA. T- so um, tell us the history, the why, how you got involved. I mean, you you volunteered your entire life. You you, you stepped away from um, corporate from the bail system almost twenty years ago. Within three years, four years, you were president of NSDA, and you've continued to serve in that role. Purely volunteer, probably what twenty or thirty hours a week. I would expect. Uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's that's probably a good uh, minimum estimate. So, but it, but it's uh, as as I uh, I classify it all the time. It's a labor of love. Yes, I, I mean it really is because it's it's a fantastic organization. First of all, and secondly, 
you know, it's just who I am and who I grew up to be with all of the influences, whether it's my granddad, my parents. Uh, I just had a great family with uh, that had all the good influences uh, that fortunately I was able to uh, carry most of those through uh, my adult life. Yeah. Uh, you know, like everybody else, I'm uh, I'm sure there's uh, a few along the way that I should have carried forward but didn't. But nevertheless, uh, about uh, the year 2000, late 1999, 2000, <clears throat> I started experiencing voice problems. Okay. And what I noticed was uh, when I was up in uh, speaking to a group, and of course in the position I had in the, in the corporate world, it was just that's what you did all the time. You're speaking to meetings, groups, whatever the, the case was, and sometimes, uh, you know, huge numbers of people. And it was just, I was one of those fortunate people that never really bothered me that much uh, to, to get up in front of a crowd and, and talk to people. But I started noticing that in, uh, in that time frame, 99, uh, 2000, that my voice was kind of getting getting a little wacky and and i was having a little difficulty saying certain words and so i found myself starting to pause more so immediately i began saying what the heck's going on with me you know i've never been nervous standing up in front of a group speaking before is what what's happening here right. i mean all of a sudden i must sound like a total you know idiot for the people out there so at any rate, um, uh, I started to visit uh, some ENTs, uh, ear, nose, and throat uh, doctors, mm -hmm. specialists. And after visiting with five or six of them, it was pretty obvious that they really didn't know what was going on with my voice. And, and it was a, kind of a typical journey that most people with this voice condition have in that you're told that, yeah, you know, maybe it's stress, you know, and you need to get stress out of your life. Well, the person who can get stress out of their life, I'd like to meet. I'm still waiting. <laughs> but uh, everything from that to allergies, uh, in fact, I went through the whole uh, regimen of allergy tests. And, right. you know, it, when, they, when they test you for like 200 different allergies, oh it's pretty obvious that that something's going to hit, you know, right. you're going to be allergic to something. So at any rate, but <clears throat> going through all of that, my voice was not improving. Um, and I had one ENT that told me I had nodules on my vocal folds, so he wouldn't do surgery. I uh, said, eh, I don't, I don't think so at this point, sir. So at any rate, long story. <clears throat> uh, after visiting all those ENTs, I was actually out of the country. And my executive assistant called me and said that uh, the very first EMT that I went to had called saying that he had a good friend who was an otolaryngologist, which okay. was a person that had a little additional training than just the regular ENT. Okay. Uh, an additional training in voice. So um, he thought that his, uh, his friend might be familiar with my voice problems if I wanted to uh, to go visit with him. So uh, I said, sure, absolutely. And uh, so we we said, he actually set up the appointment, the whole bit. So I go to visit with the uh, otolaryngologist. Within uh, less than five minutes of sitting, talking with him, 
He said, you have spasmodic dysphonia. And I remember so vividly a, a great relief coming over you because now you've got a name to this thing. Okay. And it's all of a sudden, now it's, and you've had these people tell you that, well, it's basically in your head. <laughs> Even a couple of ne- neurologists wow. I went to that wanted to refer me to psychologists and psychiatrists. And those those two meetings didn't go well, so we'll leave it at that. So uh, <laughs> I cannot uh, imagine, Charlie. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> he he told me about my dysphonia, and he explained to me. He said, uh, "We don't really have good treatment options. We don't really know what the cause is. So there, uh, obviously, we don't have a cure for it. So you kind of go on this roller coaster. All of a sudden, you you feel uh, a bit of uh, relief." that you've got a name for it, but then all of a sudden the roller coaster hits the top and it's heading down uh, underwater that, uh, geez, we don't really know much about this, do we? So he explained that the, um, essentially the standard of treatment is botulinum toxin injections uh, into the, and they're just tiny little muscles that control your vocal folds. Okay. So in my case, <coughs> uh, what happens with my voice is those little muscles spasm and it causes my vocal folds essentially to slam together and then they don't release properly to get the proper amount of airflow okay so that's why a lot of times i will have to use more effort and pressure and i kind of feel kind of a bit strangled maybe or something like that so i'm having to put more pressure in to get the airflow that I need through my vocal folds in order to phonate or to speak. Okay. So it turned out that <coughs> the otolaryngologist that I was talking with was actually doing some treatment sessions that same day. So I got my first Botox injection uh, the same day that, that he told me what the condition was. So, so it's, it's a very rare voice condition that impacts voice quality it's tied to spasms that impact your vocal folds and no known cause no known cure just exists in the standard of care then and in your case given given the particular type of sd the the standard of care at this point is Botox injections that go into your some of your neck muscles just above the collarbones or well or actually it right goes there. in if you think about uh, where your Adam's apple is mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. just below your Adam's apple okay. is where they inject okay and uh, most of the laryngologists <coughs> use in, including uh, uh, my physician something called EMG, electromagnetic gain, where they put little electrodes uh, on your neck and around the side of your neck. And it's connected to the needle that they actually do the injection with, and it's connected to a box where and, um, he will insert the needle uh, into, the, into my throat, into the airway, into those muscles, and, and we'll say, okay, say E, and what happens is, that is generating feedback through the needle into the box. So that's the electromagnetic gain reading that he sees, and it comes out essentially as a, as a graph on, on a, a device that he's using 
which in most cases they have just a box. Sometimes they project it up on the screen so you can actually uh, lay there or sit there and look at it. So they know essentially through their experience the level of gain that they need depending on the, uh, the graph and uh, the feedback they're getting if they're reasonably well in the, in the good position within those tiny little muscles. And so uh, that's kind of how the process works. And as I said, my type of SD is called AD, adductor, because my vocal folds slam together. The other predominant type is AB, abductor, meaning that uh, people's uh, vocal folds, or the muscles actually, spasm, that will not allow the vocal folds to come together enough so too much air is escaping or going through the vocal fold, and people have a very breathy or low-sounding uh, voice, and uh, it becomes very, very difficult for them to, to, to talk and to speak. And unfortunately, <clears throat> the muscles, the little muscles that control the closing of your vocal folds are kind of in the back of your larynx. So it's much more difficult for the physician to get the needle oh. into the position mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to inject or to treat people with that AB type. So as a result, many people with that type of spasmodic dysphonia have chosen not to get treatment. They just live with it. Yeah. And, wow. Uh, wow. So, so tell us in the, in the minutes we have left here, um, tell us about the work of two things. Tell us about the work of the National Spasmodic Dysphonia Association, NSDA. Tell us about uh, what it's involved with, what it's doing, its role in, the, in you know, because t- two or three years into this, you know, you, you obviously went home, you did your research, you found NSDA, you started volunteering, and for most of the, pretty much ever since you retired, you've been board president, right? Well, I've um, been, been on the board anyway for been that on, period of time. Um, so, so tell us about the, the work of NSDA in a particular um, tell us how to uh, tell our listeners how to find NSDA. If, if, if they, somebody they know, somebody they've met, somebody that works for them, a family member, somebody they know that is experiencing voice problems that have not been identified. They're experiencing what you experienced. You mm-hmm. go to the psychiatrist and say it's in your head. No, nah, it's allergies. It's this. You don't know what you're talking about. All that negative stuff you got. Okay. Right, right. If, if they're experiencing this, how do they find uh how do they find out more? How do they reach out to somebody? How do they connect with the support group? Okay, uh, great. Uh, first of all, I, after I was uh, uh, basically told, and, and we tend to use the word diagnosed, but told of the condition that I had, the president of the uh, NSDA, National Specialized Phone Association, contacted me uh, through another person who happened to live here in Atlanta who had been president of the organization uh, prior to, at that time, the particular uh, president. So at any rate, that's how they kind of got to know something about me because I had known this other, this other person for a while. So at any rate, she contacted me and said, uh, would you be interested in joining our board? Well, I was still working at that point. So... Uh, you know, my whole career had been corporate, and I loved it. And, uh, like I always had a great job and, and the whole bit. So I wasn't really ready to retire, but it was becoming clear to me that uh, 
it was becoming more and more difficult for me to to function to the level that I'd always expected of myself. Mm-hmm. So um, after uh, she sent me the letter, and then about a month or so later, she actually called me. So and that was the first time I had ever heard another person with a voice condition similar to mine. Okay. So we talked for a while, and um, they had a board meeting scheduled for, I don't recall now, but a few months after the time when she called me and she said hey you know just come visit with us sit in the organization sit through the board meeting see what you think so and so forth so i did and uh, decided that hey first of all it's time for me to retire mm-hmm. and make a uh, make a shift in my life and secondly uh you know i i like the people here so that that looks pretty good so, okay, that's what we're going to do. So I essentially retired from the corporate world and became a uh, NSDA board member pretty much at the same time. Okay. So um, within uh, the first year of being on the board, um, they drafted me to uh, become the treasurer of the organization. And then, uh, I don't know, a few, three or four years or so later after that, uh, became the vice president, and then in 2010 uh, became president. So I've been okay. president of the organization since 2010. Okay. So we have uh, local uh, support groups um, across the country. Right now we have about 50 <coughs> uh, local support groups, and we have uh, – well over 250 people around the country and in fact around the world that we call area contact people who um, will help others that they they learn about who have SD or a voice condition and so uh, those are the what I refer to and I tell those folks all the time they are the face of our organization to their local communities and we have just some fantastic people in those positions and they do a great job and that's where uh, we spend a lot of our time uh, helping people who are either recently diagnosed or sometimes uh, it will be people who have struggled for years with SD or some other voice condition that did not know about us and that never, in some cases, uh, never really met anyone with a, uh, a different RI voice condition similar to theirs. So uh, there are there there are lots of voice conditions, uh, but there are some that uh, have, uh, based on limited knowledge that we have today, we think they're in the realm of the neurological voice condition like spasmodic dysphonia, things like vocal tremor, mm-hmm. uh, muscle tension dysphonia, which um, there are different types of muscle tension dysphonia, which for a lot of people can be treated with speech uh, 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 therapy. Uh, but there are also people with muscle tension dysphonia where speech therapy does not help them that much. Uh, then there's lots and lots of people with vocal fold paralysis and paresis. And it turns out that uh, 
most of the people with vocal flow paralysis are what's called idiopathic vocal flow paralysis, meaning the physician really cannot determine what the cause is. So most likely it's related in some way to the, to the neurological uh, basis similar to perhaps similar to spasmic dysphonia or vocal tremor. So what we did about three years ago is uh, changed our mission and expanded our mission to uh, include people with spasmic dysphonia and what I labeled as related voice conditions. So we have been in the process for the last two or three years of making sure that people uh, across the patient community understood that we're here to help you uh, to, through, uh, through research, education, awareness, and support. And so research, research, education, education awareness, awareness, and, and support. support. Correct. Okay. And um, part of that um, expanding our mission drove us to start thinking about should we change the name of our organization. Okay. So the fact that it's called National Spasmodic Dysphonia Association is specific. It's in fact is exclusive to yes. people with SD. So I want it to be, and we want it as a board, to be more in inclusive, which should be consistent with our mission statement that that we built about three years ago. So we're in the process of changing the name to Dysphonia International. Okay. Um, and uh, that's probably in a year away at this point before we actually go live with it because it uh, requires a lot of regulations, uh, filings with, uh, with the IRS for uh, nonprofit status, tax-exempt right. status for the new name, and uh, then we filed uh, with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to register and trademark our new name and logo and so forth. Go th go through that process. So uh, right now, so so right now, you you provide support through the support group. So if 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 someone that's listening or somebody that they know may have a voice condition or just be struggling with some uh, unidentified voice situation then they could go to dysphonia.org, D as in dog, Y, S, P as in Paul, H, O, N, I, A, dot org, dysphonia.org, and they can learn more. Right. Would they be able to send an email, like through a contact section, and say, I'm, I, I'm, I have this voice situation, I have no <laughs> idea what's going on, what do I do next, or who do I talk right. to? Absolutely. It's, uh, our, we redesigned our website uh, a couple of years ago, and we're pretty proud of it it's uh, it has a lot of interactive uh, features to the website we also have lots of videos on there now where people can hear other people with voice conditions but then there's multiple ways that they can contact us and we also have a section on the website with all of our local groups uh, around the country okay so all they have to do is uh, plug in their state <coughs> and click on select and uh, it will give you within that uh, particular state then you can then you can uh, uh, go through and search by city within the state so you can find a, a local group uh, that you could uh, contact those people uh, we have email addresses there 
or they can contact us in our office at simply NSDA uh, at dysponia.org. In addition to that, we also have what we call a health care referral listing where we have all the laryngologists and speech-language pathologists, SLPs, that we're aware of right now uh, across the country who treat spasmodic dysphonia, uh, muscle tension dysphonia, tremor, Okafol paralysis. So they, again, go the same process, select your state, or click on your state, select uh, that, and um, it will carry you uh, to the particular state, and then you can search through by city to find a healthcare professional in your area or uh, as reasonably close as possible because, again, it's a relatively small uh, physician community who treat spasmodic dysphonia because we're a small patient community Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, the thing that I've been telling our people for the last um, almost last year is that yes we're changing our name but our focus on research will continue to be spasmodic dysphonia vocal tremor MTD, and perhaps vocal paralysis. And we have information that we've developed uh, for those conditions on our website so people can uh, uh, go to our website. They can also order materials that we have available, brochures, uh, little trifle cards that explain more about the particular voice condition and our organization. So the, um, the website, dysphonia.org, is uh, just has a wealth of information. All right, good. Uh, two two more things. We we uh, we are basically at the end of our time here, but a couple more things I'd like to visit with you about just just now shortly. Uh, one is uh, uh, dysphonia.org, Dysphonia International. Let's mm-hmm. go with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, funds research. Correct. But you have a diff- you have a specific methodolo- methodology about how you fund research <laughs> because a lot of medical research is half million million dollars multi million dollar research projects, right? Absolutely. Okay. So, but but you have a particular approach. It's sort of seed funding for research. So, t- talk for a little bit about your methodology and wh- how you do the how do you fund research? Okay. Great. Um, yeah, we d- we decided. Uh, a few years ago that just simply uh, uh, putting out requests for for research projects uh, really was not producing uh, the kind of interest in, in the research that's needed to understand the condition. Plus the fact that we realized uh, that we were going to have to uh, have a larger amount of money that we could use uh, to fund the grant. So. Uh, came up with the approach of what I've called uh, seed funding for research just a few years ago. And uh, we currently uh, cap those funds at $50,000. But the idea is that we, and we are now starting to work with a lot more research teams, we're much more proactive in um, reaching out to research teams around the country, around the world, in fact and encouraging them uh, to do research on spasmodic dysphonia, tremor, so forth. Uh, so <clears throat> with our seed funding, what we can do is, is help them to get their, their lab study set up 
And it, it helps them with some initial funding. Obviously, $50,000 is not going to get you a whole lot of research. But the idea being that, that they can get their, their study set up, get their lab set up, and we also will help them recruit patients. We have just a phenomenal community who responds when we ask people, hey, here's a project that we need volunteers for this particular research study. Our community is uh, very, very responsive. So Good. we help the researcher uh, uh, with volunteers. And then the idea is that they take initial preliminary results from the work they're able to do, submit to NIH for the type of grants that million, usually a million dollars, million plus, that's needed to carry this work forward because that's well, unfortunately, beyond uh, our capability of doing as a small organization. So, good, good. So, so, so what you do is you do proof of concept may not, may not be the right phrase, but, but you give them the seed funding so that they can begin to develop the framework for what the, the big grant is going to right. look like. Get some of the equipment in place, do some of the preliminary uh, data foundation right. so that they have enough meaningful information that the grant request to the National Institutes of Health is going to gather, um, you know, it's going to, they'll pay attention to it. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, again, you've got to have some meaningful data uh, Correct. to put in a grant application to the NIH. Right. And plus the fact that the last uh, few years, uh, particularly last maybe three or four years, the NIH has uh, really started to ask research teams to work more closely with what's called patient advocacy groups, which essentially we are in terms of government lingo. Um, so um, for then that researcher to be able to take their preliminary data and information and submit their grant application, plus be able to say they're working with us already and we help them uh, secure the volunteers for the study and so on and so forth, that adds uh, the type of information to that particular uh, grant application that NIH is looking for. So it, it helps uh, the researchers in a couple of ways. Okay. L last question. Uh, I'll summarize it. So if, if one of our listeners, uh, somebody in their family, has been touched by a voice condition, Right. Okay. And let's say that they have appreciated stock or maybe they're in RMD territory like you are and they, they want to give. Mm -hmm. Okay. They want to do the QCD we talked about earlier right. or they simply want to give appreciated stock. Uh, they can read they can go dysphonia.org. There's a, a way to learn about how to give on there. And there's a there's operational protocol already in place where they can give appreciated stock. Uh, they can give from their, R, from their RMD. So if people want to support financially, and especially those that have been touched by voice condition or often those that want to give, there's a, there are ways for them to do that as well. Absolutely, and they will stay, go to our website. We have uh, large donate buttons on various okay. pages, and so all they do, uh, click on donate, gives you the various options, and we have any number of people each year who, in fact, donate appreciated stock. And our approach is that, you know, we're not in the business of uh, trying to evaluate anyone's stock or anything else. As soon as we get it, we sell it immediately. And Put so forward. that's what the, uh, the contribution for the individual would be, whatever their particular stock sells for as soon as it hits uh, 
uh, into our uh, we have a a uh, financial institution that we work with and right. a gentleman we've been working with for a long, long time. So as soon as it hits our account uh, in his uh, organization, he clicks the button and sells it. And that's what they get their tax statement for exactly. at the beginning of the year. That's good, right. good, good. I think that um, uh, that covers what we wanted to cover today. Charlie, any closing comments here? I just uh, enjoyed it, Randy. Appreciate always the uh, opportunity of talking with you and especially uh, the opportunity to uh, tell people a little bit about the the NSDA and my uh, my voice condition and uh, anything that we can do to help any of you out there uh, who uh, if you have a voice condition you have family members whatever you know, contact us it's real easy go on our website or simply send us an email NSDA at uh, dysphonia dot org and uh, I I've enjoyed. Uh, talking about uh, especially my granddad's influence and uh, uh, some of those business uh, things I learned over the years too and so appreciate it thank you thank you for sharing I appreciate you thank you for spending time with us these last two episodes I very much appreciate it and uh, folks that's it for us today for this episode thank you for joining us on Gwinnett Business Radio X uh, listening to Stewarding Family Wealth brought to you by Centurion Advisory Group you can learn more about us if you would like at centurionag.com that's it and we'll talk to you soon